If you have or know of a child on the autism spectrum or a senior with dementia, Project Lifesaver services are available to you. To find out more, please visit projectlifesaver.org. Project Lifesaver, bringing loved ones home. Many of us spend our whole life in search of purpose, desperately seeking meaningful ways to make a difference in the world with the short amount of time we are given. Deploying High has been designed to help you analyze what gives you purpose through inspirational, thought-provoking stories and conversation. I'm Nora Firestone, author of the book Deploying High about the mission and true purpose of our host. So it is a true pleasure and honor to introduce to you Chief Gene Saunders. Hi, I am Chief Gene Saunders, founder and CEO of Project Lifesaver International. Deploying High is brought to you today by Project Lifesaver International. If you haven't already, I ask you to join our mission of saving lives by subscribing at DeployingHigh.com. Thank you. Today, I feel that we're very privileged to talk with somebody that knows firsthand about PTSD and the effects. This gentleman spent a number of years with the PD and has been diagnosed with PTSD. And he has consented very graciously to come and talk to us about it. I hope all of you listen intently, because I'm sure there's some of you that'll be on this podcast or viewing it on YouTube that probably need this kind of information. I'd like to introduce you now to Mr. Dave Wagner. Dave, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Gene. Thanks for having me on the on the show. Well, thank you for being here. Now, you were in police work. How long were you in police work and where were you? Uh, I spent uh, just about 12 years with the city of Memphis Police Department before uh, medically retiring. Prior to that, I uh, served as a volunteer uh, reserve officer for the Lakeville, Minnesota Police Department. So how did you get into police work? What, what interested you to come into it? Well, uh, it's the cliche that most people say it's I've always wanted I always wanted to be a cop and I wasn't able to do that until I was 31 years old. That's when I went through the academy, one of the older members of my academy class. Um, but really it was it was the the desire to help people and the desire to, you know, try to make some kind of a difference. Well, I think I've heard that a lot. In fact, I think I felt the same way when I went into police work. So let's talk about some of your experiences as a police officer. And as earlier, before we started the show, we talked about probably Memphis was the uh, one that was caused the most situations with you. So give us some of your experiences, some of the things you went through that you think probably manifested itself into this. Well, uh, Memphis is one of, if not the number one most dangerous city per capita. Um, as of right now, uh, last year, they, their homicide record was shattered and it, uh, looks like it might be on pace to do that again. Um, a lot of the things that happened were, you know, there was a lot of shootings. There was a lot of homicides. There was a lot of abuse. 
both domestic and child abuse. And there, you know, there was multiple instances, like uh, as we talked earlier before the show, um, my first call out of the gate was the shooting. I didn't even know where I was. I'd never been to Memphis before. Um, I basically, I, I went to Memphis because uh, I applied a few different places and Memphis was kind of, they were the first ones to offer me a position. So I went through the academy, which at the time was one of the hardest academies out there. Um, really struggled, you know, being 31 years old. Uh, I wasn't as nimble as as the 20 year olds that were in there, 21, 22. So I, I did struggle a little bit, but uh, once I came out, you know, like I said, there was, there's multiple instances of, you know, uh, very traumatic scenes, multiple, um, wounded, uh, multiple dead bodies. Um, just a lot of just about the worst things you can see. I'm, I've, I've often said, uh, that I've probably seen just about every way a person can die either well, by the hand of another or accidental. Well, I can echo that, you know, and I think the other thing, in fact, you mentioned it, and I agreed with you before the show, is that uh, not only is it the fact that we had to deal with those type situations and seeing what one person could do to another, uh, where many people in this civilization have no idea how cruel and how barbaric people can be. The other thing is, Many people look at police officers as, quote, fearless. Well, I, that's, that's a misnomer if I've ever heard one. Because I think, and I'd like for you to expound on it, police officers do have fear when they go into situations. So tell me what your experiences with that was. Um, there's multiple situations I have. I was, unfortunately, was involved in a shooting. And uh, I can tell you that uh, that was probably the most scared I have ever been in my life. And luckily, they they tell you in the academy, your training will take over. And it did, because if it were left up to me, I might have froze. But my training, you know, kicked in and we were able to, you know, uh, basically save each other on that night. But there are many times when you're dealing with unknowns and and things that you're walking up to you're walking up to a house where it could be a domestic dispute or it could be somebody hiding behind the door it could be a trap you know an ambush of some kind you're always on alert and i noticed that after uh my my incident uh my level of hypervigilance went so high that it was 24 7 whether i was at home or whether i was at work it was always there. There was always this worst case scenario and planning it out. And um, it got to the point where I would I would have my gun on me at all times, mowing the lawn, checking the mail, you, you name it. I, it. Just because I needed to be, I felt I needed to be ready at all times. And that was a, a, a fear that something would happen. And like I said, it spills over from professional into your home life. And when your family sees you on that level of alert, they start to notice and they're like, something's, you know, you're not, you're not normally like this. You can't be laid back. You, you have to sit, you know, so you can see a doorway, you know, you, you plan an exit strategy, you know, there's, there's just so much of it. And, and it, it's based in 
the fear of not being able to to do something. Well, yeah, I, I agree with that 100 percent. You know, a lot of uh, people like to kid that they always spot a cop when they walk into a building, when a cop walks in because they scan the room. Well, I think that's part of what you're talking about. You know, the hypervigilance, the fact of sitting with your back, not to a door, uh, planning. Okay, what if, what if you're always running that through your mind? And I have been retired from active duty for 20 years and I find myself still doing it. I still, when I walk into a place, I scan it. Uh, I don't like to, but I've gotten a little better sit with my back to the door. Um, but I am always thinking about what if, what if, how do I get out of here? Uh, if I've got somebody with me, how do I get us out of here? So when did you first realize that you may have, uh, developed a situation akin to PTSD? Um, it was, it was kind of a slow, slow process, um, of it, of it kind of creeping up and building, um, but I think I noticed that about a year after uh, my incident, and um, I noticed it because I was doing, you know, basically self-medicating with alcohol. And prior to that, I rarely drank. And I started to drink more and more and more. Uh, you know, it was always never on duty or anything like that, but it, it it was it was about a year afterwards I had noticed it, and I then I started to have you know issues where I would get um, shaky. I would start sweating, and I would start uh, kind of because of the situation that led up to uh, uh, our shooting. Um, is it was a typical call, so whenever that call would come out again, it would just bring that all back to to me. So, uh, a couple of years after that, I, it, it's progressively started to get worse and I started to, uh, at, it's at that time I realized that I needed to reach out that I, I, I wasn't going to be able to do this by myself. So it wasn't something that, you know, it happened overnight. It's something that was progressive and kept going and along with the PTSD came the anxiety attacks and panic attacks and eventually led to uh, my final call. I went home after this and put in my paperwork to retire. And I was on a burglary call, uh, a burglar alarm call, I should say. And I was clearing the outside of the house and I came on a hard corner. And as we're taught to do, I had my weapon out and slice the pie and come around that corner wide. And I noticed that my hands were shaking so badly that I could, I could, my, my, there was no way if I was to get into uh, a gun battle of any kind that I would be anywhere near accurate. And that's when I realized I was now a danger, not only to myself, but to my partners. And I couldn't, I couldn't go on anymore. So with that, you, you put in your papers. Yes. What and kind of reception did you get when you put in your papers? Oh boy. <laughs> I I'll, I'll say this. I found out who my friends were. Um, there is a stigma attached to it because, uh, 
you're you're seen as weak. Um, and it not not every officer. There was a lot of them that were on my side and told me I was doing the right thing and that it'd be better for me in the long run. And they're they're still my friends today. But the way administrations handle it, I'm not going to single out Memphis or any because this is something that goes on nationwide. The way the department handles it is uh, basically they send you home, you sit, and you wait for the for it to go through. Nobody called to check on me. Nobody called to say how you doing. Uh, as far as from the helplines that that are available, and it was a surreal experience because uh, I had to go and see uh, multiple psychiatrists um, and have them basically re-diagnose me and, and agree with, with my therapist as to the diagnosis, which they did. And uh, at that point, I was supposed to be retired, uh, line of duty. And there was a snafu with that. We wound up having to go to court. Uh, luckily, I was a member of, of our, our our police association, and I was given an attorney to help me with this. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have been able to do it. And it was a hard thing to do. It, I mean, this was my dream. This was, you know, this was a job that I, I felt I and others might agree or disagree, but I felt I was really good at. Uh, I was a CIT officer, I, so I dealt with people who were who were mentally ill on a regular basis. And now to to be able to diagnose, kind of diagnose somebody on the street, but not be able to see it in yourself, you know, is kind of a you know, it's kind of surreal. But back to you know, putting in the papers was it, it was it was one of the most difficult decisions of my life, but. In the long run, where I am now, uh, it was absolutely for the best. This is Deploying High, and I am Chief Gene Saunders, founder and CEO of Project Lifesaver International. Please join our mission of saving lives by subscribing to DeployingHigh.com. Now, back to the show. Today, I'm talking to Mr. Dave Wagner. Dave is a retired police officer from the Memphis PD and also a sufferer of PTSD. Well, I think you highlight one of the things that is um, pervasive in law enforcement, and that is the stigma that somehow attaches to this. You know, years ago uh, in World War II, soldiers exhibited such things as what they call battle fatigue or shell shock. Well, I think they learned after a while, at some point, probably after the Vietnam situation in Afghanistan, that it was actually PTSD, that all these fears and all this hypervigilance were now manifesting themselves because they had been suppressed for so long. Uh, as we talked earlier, you know, I can remember suppressing all these things. You go to a call, you, you handle it, you walk away, you, you forget it. Well. You don't really forget it. You file it somewhere back in the subconscious. Well, at some point in time, and not being a psychologist, but speaking from experience and from what you're saying and others I've talked to, this comes back. 
at some point it comes back and it will all, and it will manifest itself in different ways with different people. Uh, yours was the panic and the anxiety. Uh, I think, you know, if somebody were to ask me, well, Gene, do you think you have PTSD? Well, yeah, I do. And why do I think that? Well, for years and years and years, I was a very stalwart, very unemotional kind of person. Uh, but I've noticed in the last few years, it takes nothing to make me cry. Now, you, you, you said something about watching a, an ASPCA commercial. Well, shoot, I think I could watch a pain relief commercial and I might cry, depending <laughs> on what they say. Uh, it takes nothing, almost nothing to trigger it. Uh, I haven't, you know, had the, the other things that you have experienced. But I think that's, in my opinion, my layman's opinion, I think that's part of it. And I think every police officer, and you and I both agreed, and even firefighters, if you spent any length of time in this profession, you probably have a form or degree of PTSD. I think they found that with all the soldiers that came out of combat, that they all have some form. Now, do, you know, do they want to admit it? Probably not because of the stigma, you know, I'm, I'm superhuman. I can do this. I can go on all these things and it never bothered me. Um, so I, that's kind of my opinion. And, and how do you feel about that? I, I definitely agree with you that any, any first responder out there, be it a law enforcement officer, uh, corrections officers, even, uh, they see quite, quite a few things and as, as do firefighters, EMS, you know, so any any frontline first responder is going to have some form of of, of PTSD, whether whether it manifests itself the, the, the way it does with me. Uh, not every not everybody reacts the same to it. Everybody's symptoms are, are different, but there are some commonalities of being unable to control emotions. And like you were saying, dry, crying at the drop of a hat, you know, and, you know, uh, and overthinking and and over, over just overthinking simple things. Um, a perfect example is this morning. You and I are just sitting here having a nice conversation. But prior to this, my anxiety level was very high because I'm I'm also putting myself out for another type of stigma that comes along with PTSD, and that's the civilian people that way they view PTSD. They see a soldier or a police officer with PTSD and all the first thing they think about is, oh, he's going to shoot up the place or something like that. So quite honestly, since I've retired, unless you are a friend of mine and know me personally, I would not tell you that I'm retired due to PTSD. I would just say I have back problems, which I do. I think we all have that as well, Karen wearing that yeah. duty belt for <laughs> yeah. so many years. But, uh, I mean, all the running, fighting, jumping over fences gets to you. So that I, I basically, if anybody asks, you know, when I put it down on, you know, an application or something like that as retired, they'll be like, you're retired, you're 45 years old, and I'm like, I'm medically retired. And then I'll just tell them I have, I have a bad back, you know. But that, you know, like I said, it, it kind of puts it out there that 
there's a stigma inside the police department. There's a stigma in society about it as well. That PTSD, it means you're crazy. It means you you can fly off the handle at any minute. You don't have any control over anger or something. That That's not the case, not with everyone. Now, granted, it does happen, but not everybody reacts that way. That's actually a small minority of them. And PTSD is, you know, it can be from one incident. Uh, that sticks with you, or in my case, where it becomes complex PTSD, is a number of things have come together. And this this includes things from work and uh, losing friends in the line of duty. Uh, th- those are things that that accumulate. Like I said, when they when when they finally burst, when the dam ruptures, it, it, it's a flood of emotion. You know. So I like it. I I just you know I like to tell these officers, firefighters, military personnel out there, don't wait to go and talk to somebody if you're having problems. Don't wait. I've seen too many uh, colleagues end up at the bottom of a bottle with a gun in their mouth. You know, and it's it's time to start addressing this because this is a very serious issue in law enforcement that has not gotten the recognition uh, that it needs. And uh, something as simple as critical incident stress debriefings, we have those and mostly every department has them. We had two stress debriefings following my shooting. I talked with the city's psychologist and was basically asked, you ready to go back to work? And I said, sure am, because that's what I was taught to do was to suppress everything and move along, you know? So it's, it, these stress debriefings need to be followed up with maybe peer counseling uh, or maybe, you know, not mandatory uh, therapists or therapy visits or anything like that, but made available should you need it. Again, I agree wholeheartedly uh, because, you know, when I was coming up, we didn't have any such thing. I mean, you went through all, all these kind of situations. You just, you did, you sucked it up. You went on about your job and the, the stigma was really, really there uh, then. And it has not gone away. As you mentioned, I think it's important uh, to have somebody like you to, to come on here and talk about this thing. It's not a situation that's going to go away. It's going to be there. Why? Because first responders deal with traumatic situations every day, eight hours a day, and sometimes more. They're put into situations where they have to make snap decisions that, you know, one of the, one of the heartaches I had with the police department was you put a person into a situation where they, you know, or they get into a situation where they have to make a snap decision. They make it, and then they have to suffer with it for years. And what do I mean by suffer? All of the internal investigations, the questioning, the stigmatization from the public, you know, right away, uh, as we've seen now, when a police officer gets into a situation, nine-tenths of the public judge them wrong right away. And then that never goes away. I mean, you don't see the news coming back on and saying, 
Well, John Doe, the police officer involved in this situation, has been cleared of all charges. He was justified in what she, he or she did, and they did it in the right way. I've never seen that. Have you? I can, from my own personal experience, the uh, the incident was covered pretty heavily on the news. Um, once we were cleared and uh, no, you know, cleared of any uh, wrongdoing by the, the uh, district attorney's office, uh, there was a about a 10 second. Uh, it wasn't even on the news. It was about a half a paragraph article saying that the officers it didn't say we did the right thing. It just says we wouldn't face any charges. And it that's gotten progressively worse as, as we've gone along here, as we can see with multiple shootings that have come out, and especially with YouTube out there and all that, where you can you, you've got the luxury of analyzing that shooting in, in the afterthought, you know, in the, in the Monday morning quarterback of it. And something that even on video looks to be unjustified to some people winds up being because there's always more to it. You know, you, you, you get a 10 second, you know, body cam or something like that and you make a decision based off of that. Well, you, you gotta, you know, I believe in giving officers the benefit of the doubt. If you're wrong, you're wrong. I mean, we police officers are not infallible. We make mistakes. Uh, the case up in Minnesota where she drew her firearm instead of her taser, that was a mistake that, you know, and it was it was blown up to be something it wasn't, you know, and it, it, you could it wasn't until the, the trial was actually going on that you saw the emotional toll that it took on that officer. Mm -hmm. She was on the ground crying and, and right after immediately following that shooting. And I, I, I could relate to her. And honestly, I, when I saw it for the first time, I started crying because I knew what she was feeling. Because contrary to popular belief out there in the media, police officers do not go into work wanting to shoot somebody. Uh, that's the last thing I, I never thought it, it would happen with me. And it has affected me. Uh, and it affects me to this day because uh, another man a human being lost their life. Somebody, somebody's child, somebody's brother, somebody's friend, you know, that was a person too. Granted that person made bad decisions on that evening, but the officer still carries that with them wherever they go. Just like, you know, it's, it's a difference. There's a little bit of a difference between a war and an up close, you know, personal, uh, shooting like that, where you you replay this and you're you constantly for I, I remember after mine, I did not sleep for three days straight. My adrenaline was just so up and I was I sat there replaying it, saying, is there something else I could have done? What else could we have done? Did, did you know, was it, were, were we good? You know, you second guess yourself because you know that the media is going to second guess you. Yes. And sure. it, it was, you know. It, that in and of itself is a traumatic experience for somebody to go through because I didn't want to, you know, yeah. nobody, nobody wants to do that. Well, Dave, I'm afraid we are out of time for today's episode, but if I remember correctly, you're going to be with us at the conference. Yes, I will. Well, that's good because I encourage all the first responders that come to the conference to, to listen to you, listen to what you have to say 
and take it to heart because it could save you a lot of anguish later on. That's all the time we have for this episode of Deploying High. Please join our mission of saving lives and never miss an episode by subscribing to DeployingHigh.com. I'm Chief Gene Saunders, the founder and CEO of Project Lifesaver International. We're bringing it all into view. Thanks for listening to this episode of Deploying High with Chief Gene Saunders, brought to you by Project Lifesaver International. Deploying High would like to thank all of our supporters across the country and around the world. All proceeds from Deploying High go to support Project Lifesaver International online at projectlifesaver.org. If you'd like to help support the mission, please subscribe to our channel, make a donation, and don't forget to tell a friend about us. You see it in the news. Patients with Alzheimer's or young children with autism wander off from their caregivers and become lost. After 24 hours, there's only a 50% survival rate. Searches can involve multiple agencies, hundreds of officers and volunteers, and thousands of dollars. Since 1999, Project Lifesaver International has provided first responders and caregivers with technology and training to quickly locate individuals with cognitive disorders who are prone to wander. The method relies on proven radio technology, together with specially trained search and rescue teams. The result? A 100% program success rate with over 3,600 lives saved so far. Instead of hours or days lost, the average recovery time is 30 minutes. To learn more, visit projectlifesaver.org.